Aalto University Podcast. The funny thing is that when you you listen to students speaking, they develop these strong identities. I come from finance, I come from accounting, I come from business law, I come from marketing. So actually they are starting to sometimes build silos before they actually realize in working life that I need to bust these silos. I'm not going to make it to the top if I'm so confined to my own comfort zone. Welcome aboard Future-Led Learning. Future-Led Learning by Alta University. Life-wide learning and constantly developing one's skills are central to the modern working life. Just having a university degree is not enough. We must learn throughout our careers and indeed our whole lives. I had the opportunity to discuss these themes with Dr. Pekka Mattila, the Group Managing Director and Associate Dean of Aalto University Executive Education and Professor of Practice at the Aalto University School of Business. Dr. Mattila has an extensive career in coaching and consulting and hence unique insight into ways degree students and managers learn. My name is Rika Evans. And I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you will too. Future-led learning. So, Pekka, you come from other university executive education. Uh, so you come, you have a wider experience on teaching than just the university side. Uh, I think my experience is 95% of working with executives and, and and senior management, middle management, and so on. So it gives slightly different perspective. So from an executive education point of view, how would you define life-wide learning? I think actually um, the whole idea of Alto University Executive Education, Alto EE, is about life-wide learning. We just haven't been using that label. And I think actually... Um, For my team members, it's not such a big transition at all. Um, people graduated from different disciplines. Uh, there are multiple drivers. For example, people with degrees in medical sciences, engineering, law, um, and then they are moving and and and, and starting to to pursue a managerial career. Um, they want to get the basic toolkit, and the higher up they go. Uh, the, the, the more very more varied topics become become important. So so that's part of the the, the uh, identity transition professionally. Secondly, it's not only people from outside of the business school, a graduate school, the business school alumni who need it. Actually, a significant proportion of people who are using our services are actually business school graduates, because you need to take certain things uh, into a very applied level or Naturally, things change over time. Uh, how we were thinking and uh, teaching about marketing, for example, it was quite different, let's say, 20 years back compared to how it is today. So it's about recalibrating oneself, but it's also about updating oneself. And for many people driven by individual interests, it's also about not only pursuing dreams that are related to the current employer or the current profession, But quite a few people are dreaming about may- making a career transition. And I think this is driven by the fact that people realize that the, the, the generations we are part of, we have to work till we are 70 or so, you better make it as fun as possible. 
I was looking at your guys' website on Alto EE and and I quote, Alto EE is a provider of impactful, goal-oriented and measurable learning experiences and unique customer experiences with verifiable business benefits. Can you elaborate a little bit further? What do you guys mean with that? Uh, for years, we have had this kind of concept of impact and experience. And impact happens at multiple levels. Uh, first of all, uh, it's the individual level, and that is our largest responsibility. Normally, this is quite easy that you are taking care of the individual needs and you are you are you are trying to to respond to them as as, as well as possible, having a group of twenty five, thirty, forty people. But sometimes you find situations where actually the interests of an individual and interests of the employer are in conflict. And that's an ethical question as well. And we are always having the first priority for the individual. The second level is the organization, the employer. Sometimes they are having very clearly defined strategic targets. They want this program to part, be part of some kind of capability transformation or cultural shift or so on. And finally, the third level, it's about society. Uh, it's about business ecosystems. It's about whole industries. For example, in the Finnish healthcare industry, we have been having a pivotal role in, in, in supporting the leadership culture there over the past, let's say, 15, 20 years. Um, we measure the impact right after each module, right after uh, the whole program. When it's a general open program, naturally, we have them goals defined for that program. But when it's a program that is customized for a certain organization, we have also preset goals for the program that has this program delivered on this and that dimension and to what extent. So it happens after each module, each uh, program immediately. But then we also have this kind of <clears throat> survey conducted uh, about nine to 12 months after the program, the long-term survey. So how much did you truly adopt how much did you apply what did you try in practice what is what is sustainable and what was just this kind of food for thought type of aspect that's the impact side the experience side is that we want to create learning experiences that are memorable they has have to be beyond normal we are competing in many cases with in-house learning opportunities or other educational service providers we must be beyond that. That's also the only way to justify the price point. And it starts with small details. When you are experiencing our campus, it must be beyond your home. It must be beyond high-quality hotels. It must be something that runs smooth, smoothly. But it's also something that is mm, intangible very much. It, it's about our ability to create psychologically safe spaces, to speak about, also about them, sensitive topics, the topics that make you feel vulnerable in in, a, in this kind of community of, of fellow participants uh, in a community of friends. That sounds excellent. And and I would like to ask you that what is your own approach to learning? I, I, I think I am pretty well positioned to be a teacher because I, I always want to combine theory and practice. I like frameworks. I like frameworks and, and grand theories in the Meritonian sense, but also I want to turn them, I want to translate them into practice really quickly. And um, and I think um, this is quite easy to do in a context of 
of, of life-wide learners, people with lots of experience already because they can relate to. But I believe that the same approach applies also to undergraduate and graduate students. You just need to frame it a bit differently. But I, I believe that, um, that uh, to be honest, what I don't believe in is this kind of that people have certain learning styles and they are very fixed. I think people are more flexible in general. Um, myself, for example, I'm very kinesthetic. At the same time, I'm extremely theory-driven and anything between. And this is versatility that, that um, I'm nurturing in myself and I hope that every student is nurturing oneself. That's why I don't like the learning style thing because then it makes it so easy for a learner to, in a way, give up that, okay, I don't understand anything about this. I want to have practice or I want to have theory or I want to listen or I want to read or so. And that's my style. No, it's not. One can grow and one is normally more versatile than these labels we tend to give people. Can you give us some example? Um, let, let's say a great example with um, that, that I can observe is are the MBA students, for example, when they are coming to us. Many of them have very, very clearly defined idea at the beginning how they learn. And when they are speaking about what they are frightened about, that will this be too theoretical? I'm a hands-on guy, for example. That's a typical sentence. And, um, and, and this is something that I'm not so not so keen on, I, I would like to see how things happen in practice. Or at the other extreme, some people, let's say you are having a PhD in medicine, are saying that, that I hope that this is going to also provide some theoretical frameworks and tools, that this won't be all about the hands-on business life. I appreciate theory. I, I, I think both of these extremes, they are becoming relieved when they see that these things are not somehow disconnected. They are nicely coming together and you are not only learning from the materials, the, the readings and or to, from the faculty member, but you are actually able to learn from the reflections coming from your group. You, you were comparing the Alda EE executive students, if I can, if I may call them that. Uh, you were a little bit already comparing them to our like uh, graduate and like undergraduate students. Um, how would you compare those groups as learners and, and what do you need to consider as a teacher when when you teach both undergraduate and then when you teach on the on the executive education level? I think the biggest difference is is quite natural and it's the experience. Many of the, the, the participants in executive education programs, especially the senior management level programs, they are having a professional experience of 20-25 years or so. And most of that in managerial roles. So it's easier to assume that they know the context, they know the background, they have seen it all in a way. And sometimes actually it's also easy to make false assumptions. That's the other side of it. And this is something you cannot expect from the undergrad or the graduate students um, having experience of a little bit this, a little bit that perhaps. Naturally, some of them have more experience and people come from different backgrounds, but you cannot take that for granted. So you need to give... Um, our students here at the business school more context. And uh, sometimes you need to explain the basics of how, let's say, certain industry works and what are the important things when you are listening to this case study or to this keynote. Um, I think that the, the difference in experience is one thing. Um, 
Another thing is that um, people with strong professional and managerial identities, they also have certain fixed mindsets. They have their own toolkit and toolbox. They, 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 they are very confident about what works, what, what doesn't. In many cases, naturally, people open up and then they, they are having this kind of learning mindset too, but <clears throat> they already have their own ideas, what works, what doesn't. And in a way, um, with um, business school students, uh, the, the enjoyable thing is that many of them don't have any preset concepts. They are having this kind of um, empty paper in a way, blank canvas. And, uh, and they are quite open-minded. They also ask different questions. They don't think many things for granted. So if I think uh, for a teacher, the challenge is that for the, the business school students, you need to give some structure and some content. And with executive audiences, sometimes you need to shake a little bit these calcified ideas and, 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 and preset mindsets. Another thing is naturally that, and I think it, it, it to a certain extent matters, uh, is that um, executive education is pretty expensive. Companies or individuals, many individuals do it for themselves, are spending quite a bit of money for one day. And naturally, they have certain expectations and they are keen on giving feedback immediately if they are not being met or if they are being exceeded. It's quite direct. It's, it's very to the point and sometimes it's very blunt. And uh, they want to have return on investment, uh, time investment, monetary investment of their own as individuals or of their employer or both. And um, with uh, business school students, it's a bit different. Naturally, they realize at the end of the day, this is an investment. And it's up to me as well how much I'm going to get from this. But um, the attitude is a little bit different. For example, people are not coming late, even if they are very busy, uh, even if they are working 16 hours per day. When they are having an executive education class, they are in place on time and they leave on time and they don't leave early and so on. And if they are having something extenuating, they are actually very um, polite about asking for permission and telling about it in advance. And in my experience, that doesn't always happen in business school. And that is partially to my mind, apologies for being so direct about this, it's because the students don't, don't see the cost. If something is free uh, for them or it's, it's no cost to them, it doesn't mean it's free. So it might be actually helpful to make people more aware that how much the society is investing in you. Because I think that would be eye-opening for some of our students. Not all, but some. So you should appreciate it and you should take advantage of it and really like, you know, enjoy, be curious and open-minded about it. Um, exactly. And in, in a way, like I think it's um, also about that there is um, an alternative alternative use of these resources. So now they are allocated to you. So we expect you to live up to them. The funny thing is that with MBAs and executive MBAs, we speak lots about responsibilities of our institution towards them in terms of reputation, in terms of uh, that translates into rankings as well. But also we speak about the, 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 the responsibilities of alumni. We have this kind of way of speaking about responsibilities, I think, more 
compared to, to the business school side. And and that's funny because our participants are people in their 40s. They quite quite well know what is a responsibility. They have mortgage loan, they have uh, demanding jobs, and they have a family to take care of, many of them, and so on. But we still keep on speaking about responsibilities. Do you see this phenomenon that many times older people, like adult edu- like people who come to adult education, uh, they have a different kind of motivation because they already they've seen the working life and now they have a they have this whole new curiosity towards learning and they the context is so different than when you are here as an undergraduate student when it's your whole life the studying but when you come as a learner into executive education or in adult education in general the dynamics is different De- definitely yes that's very true people know what they need in a way uh, how could you know as a 23 year old business school student know exactly what is demanded what is needed in working life and and sometimes it is perhaps not so credible that people with no experience of working life outside of university telling them what is needed and what is required it's um it's 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 another challenge but um But and, and to be honest, I think that in some cases it might be beneficial that people are first conducting their bachelor studies, then moving into working life, and perhaps then later on continuing with the master's degree, because they perhaps know better what they are interested in, what is required, what it takes to 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 to, to get their dreams achieved, and so on. So so it's 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 a tricky thing, but naturally you can bridge it. You can bring uh, real life people, real life cases. I'm I'm mostly using, 90% using live cases in my teaching here at the business school. Uh, when working with executives in executive education, I'm using almost 90% text-based cases uh, from other industries, from other contexts. And then we may have some live cases. In many cases, they are coming from the, the very companies we are working with. But here at the business school, I'm actually investing quite a bit of time and effort in building live cases. I, I just completed a course, um, Capstone of, of Marketing batch, uh, marketing Bachelor, and uh, we had uh, three live cases. One with a small uh, growth-up company um, that is in the business of garden, garden and interior uh, decor products. Then the second case was a high-end um, attorneys uh, uh, at law uh, company, Rochier, And the third case uh, was with Nokia and Tires, a hardcore industrial company. Different challenges. And what I experienced, and I have been doing this for more than 10 years, is that actually them students appreciate it because they feel that this must be relevant because this is real life. Also, they feel that actually this is meaningful because some people have expectations of getting something out of this. So I better go the extra mile. And many are many students are actually explicit about this, that I want to give a good imp- impression of myself and of my group um, when working on this case. And also what I'm ex- extremely proud of is that almost every company representative, they are normally chief something officers or vice presidents and senior vice presidents. Normally they have global roles. They are very impressed of the students. And they are also impressed that sometimes in a time of a week, you can achieve that kind of results because they 
have their internal models of working with projects and initiatives that you expect that something ha can happen in two months' time, three months' time, four months' time, and then suddenly it happens in less than 10 days. That actually opens up the real-life cases, like the, the function and purpose really well. So thank you. Um, so let, let me take a little bit to that same path and ask you, apart from the substance knowledge, what kind of skills do we need to teach the students for the future working life, keeping in mind that we're using the real-life cases and everything? But if you think of the future, how should we... How should we bring the working life into the teaching now? And what kind of skills do we need to keep in mind? That's a very tricky question, to be honest. Um, naturally, coming from where I'm coming from, it's it's because I think there is no one-size-fits-all answer to this. Um, first of all, you need to be quite explicit. You need to, as a teacher, you need to be able to be quite explicit that if you have this kind of theory and this kind of framework and this kind of, let's say, method, uh, what are the practical applications? And not only explaining that how could you, in theory, apply this in practice, but how are companies, how are organizations beyond companies, public sector, NGOs, and so on, how they are doing this and what are the benefits? And sometimes I like that there is an element of reverse engineering that you are showing an outcome and then you explain how this outcome that was um, impactful uh, was generated by using these tools or these frameworks. So how can you see it in practice? Sometimes it's reverse engineering. So it's it's more like inductive in a way that you have first the data and then you start going backwards to the theory instead of starting with the theory and then having some vague ideas how it works. Uh, also, I think it's, um, I would like to be challenged more by the students. Sometimes I don't know whether it's about being respectful or is it about being passive. And it's a fine line between these two things. But asking more, why does this matter? What is the relevance of all this? And and I think teachers should be prepared to come back with answers. And also the teacher, him or herself, needs to be up to date. It's... Um, it's, I think it's vital that you know what's happening in, in economy, in business, and not only here in Finland, but globally, and not only the grand theories, but also the, 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 the daily breaking news and so on. I, I think that is what makes you relevant, and that, that is what makes you as a teacher uh, credible. If we think of just the everyday life of a teacher, what if there comes a situation that, say, you don't know? the answer to the student's question. How do you tackle that? Um, the worst option to my mind is some kind of mumbo-jumbo. It has happened to me, not, not at business school, but at executive education, that I have a question that is something I have never been considering about. And I normally say that, that, that I need to think about this and I'll get back to you. Um, Normally, if the question comes in a group, I get, uh, come back in a group setting. If it comes directly one-to-one, -one, then I come back directly. And perhaps there are reflections also that, that serve the, the whole group, but so on. But I think there's nothing wrong saying that I really don't know I need to figure out because that's an answer. I would like to see a medical doctor who's telling me that that, that she or she knows it all. Don't worry. I, I, we don't need to take take any tests. No exams needed. No 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 laboratory needed. I, I know it all. Just just trust me. I'm a doctor. I, I most 
likely wouldn't uh, book another appointment. That's also one part that we would like to encourage our teachers in the pedagogical studies that don't be afraid of being sort of like we're not supernatural. We don't. We can't possibly know everything. So that's also part of the vulnerability and accepting that I can't know everything, but let me find out. Let's learn together. Yep, fully agree. And actually, sometimes I think that for the teachers with fully academic background, and I have great respect for them, it might be a good idea to have this kind of personal advisory body uh, in in a way like group of people working in business in the field and having ongoing dialogue with them. Sometimes you are giving them free advice, obviously. What's going on in science? What are the newest breakthroughs or something? But also you are in exchange getting um, lots of ideas, what's relevant, what's topical, how do companies and, and organizations work with these problems. So having this kind of unofficial advisory body might be actually a very good way to approach it as a teacher. How would you then say that all these things that we've been talking about, how could, how should our teachers consider these these things when they are doing the curriculum development and, and planning their own courses? What what kind of elements should they consider? What would you bring into into the curriculum development and also planning on on a course level? Um, I think actually, and this doesn't apply to all programs, but sometimes the programs we are having, they are based on the interests of the teachers and their specialties. And uh, there is very varied balance between um, practice oriented and applicable stuff and theoretical stuff. It's quite random, to be honest, when you look at across the portfolio. And it's because of the nature of university. It's, it's, it stems from the, the faculty. Uh, so, so all in all, I think many programs would benefit from more guidance in terms of how to make it balanced. Naturally, you need to have the theory in place. You need to have the methodology in place, but also that you need to have this practical relevance. Luckily, actually, um, programs are competing for the best students and the highest number of applicants. So it makes it so that you have to be practical and relevant enough in order to get anyone. But still, I think it it should be something that is a little bit more of an anticipatory process, to my mind, instead of just looking at what what topics, what sub- subjects are going up and which ones are going down. Um, secondly, um, when you take it to the course level, um, I think actually COVID-19, again, like I'm not even claiming that there are silver linings, but I think now we when you need to consider how do you make people engaged when using Zoom and other tools, um, I think um, people have had to put a little bit more effort on designing the individual courses. And and how is them, what kind of variation do we need in terms of rhythm, in terms of ways of working? Um, if it's only broadcasting, you can easily replace it with a webcast or a podcast or so. So how do you bring in the variety? And I think that is what is needed. And sometimes actually the way I think is that if it's a really heavy, relatively tough topic, let's say, you know, coming from my field, let's say strategic pricing and pricing architecture. That's something that many business school students are not quite comfortable with or familiar with uh, because it gets exciting only when you're doing it, it, it in practice. I combine it with a keynote or some kind of live case or so on. So my, my spouse is, uh, is a conductor and I think um, building a concert 
building the programming. You have one symphony, one concerto, and then pre one prelude or, or, or something smaller. And um, if you are having something that is difficult, that is very contemporary, that is heavy and new to the audience, you need to reward them with something that is um, one of those evergreens that is loved by everyone. And, and by that, uh, you are making happy audience and, 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 and you are making them come back. I think actually same principles apply to course design and, 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 and even design of individual lectures. I like your example. And, and I like that you took it to the multidisciplinary field. Uh, how do you see it in the other E level that what are the sort of pros and cons in multidisciplinarity? Um, at Alto E level, the multidisciplinarity happens uh, in a very natural manner because people are working in roles that are multidisciplinary. You, you don't just make a managerial career if you're not able to, as a marketer, if you're not able to work with finance and legal, you, you just don't make a nice career. Uh, so, so you need to learn how to respect the other disciplines. Now, I think it's also about respect. It's not only about knowing something about them. It's, it's, it's also respecting them, the nitty gritty details of your fellow colleagues' discipline. But I think it happens quite naturally. People are seeing how interconnected everything is. Um, and I think demonstrating that in, in, in our teaching uh, would be beneficial. Instead of necessarily making this top-down, let's make an interdisciplinary course or program where it's a little bit superficial easily, and when things don't come together naturally, I think, again, going back to the fact that the real-life examples are best illustrations of that. And sometimes we need to be aware of um, what we mean by multidisciplinarity. Um, it has great advantages. I, I think it's it it and it might have actually more advantages in the field of teaching and learning uh, compared to the field of research. Uh, Eva Liljeblom, the former president of Hanken, the, the Sweden, Swedish School of Economics, said that normally you highlight um, as, a, as a strength of a piece of research its multidisciplinarity when it has no utter strengths and no utter positives. And um, even if that was a catchphrase in a way, I think there was a grain of salt in that. But in teaching and learning, I think actually um, making it making it explicit how interconnected things are. Um, the funny thing is that when you, you listen to students speaking, they develop these strong identities. I come from finance, I come from accounting, I come from business law, I come from marketing. So actually they are starting to sometimes build silos before they actually realize in working life that I need to bust these silos. I'm not going to make it to the top if I'm so confined to my own comfort zone. That's very true. I did my my background uh, homework, and I I noticed that that you actually have graduated from sociology. Is that true? That is true. Um, as a social scientist, from your background, what kind of other skills do you think that we need uh, on top of the actual substance knowledge and and these kind of like working life skills in the future? I have two different approaches. One is macro and one is micro. The macro level is that I think we need to understand how the society 
at large works and operates. Um, part of the Nordic model is that people have their degrees coming from one single discipline. And uh, if you go to the United States or United Kingdom, and I, I think they are not making great role models in, in, in many fields, but in this they do, that first of all, you have your first bachelor degree, let's say from arts and humanities, and then you have your second degree in law, and that's quite natural. Um, in Finland, in the Finnish system, you are being sent to a study counselor to, to sort out your thoughts and, and, and get some help. So, so I, I think actually it's, it's important, especially when you come from a silo like a business school, to be curious about the society at large, understand how it works, and understanding that how differently other people may see the world compared to you. Because we are being indoctrinated to, to use certain tools, certain frameworks. We are indoctrinated to think in a way we do. And I think we need to be curious, and that's our individual responsibility, to learn about the society at large. And also things that don't have this kind of functional utility uh, within the short term. I was quite lucky, to be honest, to have my, my first three degrees in, in the field of social sciences because I had, to, uh, I had time to study things that are completely useless and at the same time very useful because they give certain cognitive help and certain kind of framework and, and they offer a multitude of lenses when you're looking to the world around you. And that actually ex helps to explain many of the business problems as well. And for example, and also I think it's, it's, it's this kind of civic responsibility that understanding that with a, a university degree from a top university, at least in, a, in, in the Finnish scale and even in, in, in the European scale, uh, you are part of the elite and, and coming from a person who is known to be slightly posh and, and, and so on. And, and some people might even consider me as a snob. I, I still think that it's, it's important to have this kind of understanding that you are privileged in a way. And there are many people that are not around you. That's the macro level. Then the micro level, I think the skills of self-leadership, I, I, I think actually um, that is essential that how to be yourself um, in the best possible way and with more skill in a way. That is what matters. So the skills of self-leaders and understanding your own internal theater coming from Ketz de Vries and, and Abraham Selesnik, um, this kind of what's going on, what's happening to you, why are you thinking and feeling the way you do, and how do you cope with situations, how to how to harness your yourself when needed, how to demonstrate versatility. I think those are the skills that are very much coming from outside of the the, the core disciplines of a business school. Future-led learning. If you think of learning and teaching and, and, and the digital era that we are living in and the COVID-19 and whatnot, uh, where do you see where we're going? I think actually... Again, the, the, the learning curve, the capability ramp up we have experienced in, 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 in a little bit more than one year's time, that has, has been quite tremendous. The first stage is where that, that we were clumsily translating the traditional curricula and the course outlines into digital, and then we were calling it digital learning and teaching. But now I think um, people have had time to rethink and recalibrate and hopefully um, 
hopefully that has happened across the school and across uh, across the the, 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 the the teaching portfolio here at Alto, also in Alto University of Education, I, I think that we have started to design things for digital. And I think actually knowing how to do it offline and knowing how to do it online, actually it 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 is it's a great asset for the future because the way I see it actually that that or at least I think this is the way executive education will work, that we are moving into hybrid teaching, that some people are offline in class. Some people prefer that very strongly. Uh, they, they, they feel that it's 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 better experience when they are connecting other people face to face. And, and it's just better for many people. But some people are actually equally comfortable or even more comfortable online or it's easier for them logistically. I prefer having students in place on time instead of them coming 20 minutes late from, from, a, a, work shift, uh, from a working shift and, and then leaving early. It's, it's sometimes it's logistically more meaningful. And I think it's not so that you have offline students and online students, but you are actually seeing that people are alternating. And, um, and we have been actually doing quite a bit of that already at Executive Education uh, from June 2020 till November 2020. We were having as a dominant method, we had this hybrid model. And it was quite eye-opening for me because some people from a prominent industrial company from Northern Finland, they told us that it's so marvelous and we feel that it's, it's easier for us to participate because for us uh, having a two-day module meant technically four days off from our families, from our jobs and, and, and the office life. And now it's two days, really, just like for the people coming from the capital region. And then again, there was uh, one person who was a, a single mom with two kids. And she just said after a three-day module, uh, she participated offline in classroom for one day and two days she was online. That that this is brilliant because it makes it easier for her to to plan in advance how she is going to get it organized and it's it's less stressful. And I think actually those are the things we need to celebrate because the same things apply to undergraduate and graduate students. Um, and I think actually um, that we are going to see more somehow smooth combinations of online and offline, digital and non-digital, synchronous and asynchronous and, and so on. So, but this is where we need lots of best practices and sharing of best practices, I think. And that is a culture I would like to nurture even further. It, it has been very collegial, I think, when I'm working with my executive education faculty. People are giving each other tips and hints and so on. And the program directors and coordinators are very eager to share what they have, what they have learned. But sometimes I feel that here in the university, we're working a little, little bit more in isolation in a way. And some people are doing a brilliant job and some people are struggling. I think we should have a stronger culture of sharing. Another thing that is personally my own learning point, and some people might disagree, my teaching has always been very much based on also my personal presence and my, my, my own way of being. And that has been one of my secret sources in a way. And I was very scared when that was first taken away, when suddenly I didn't have this kind of physical presence, but it was happening through Teams or Panopto or Zoom. But then I realized that you can do it, you can make your magic happen also digitally. And 
now I'm quite comfortable with it or very comfortable with it. My personal approach is that I try to keep it simple um, because there is always this temptation when working using these digital tools that you are having so many different polls and now you're using Miro and now you're using Mural and now you're having a poll again and now you're having something else. That actually it's, um, the form comes over the function in a way. And I like to have moments of silence as well because actually those things happen in the classroom. Why should it be like this kind of amusement park when it's happening digitally? And I think actually, at least to my experience, with my teaching approach, that has been working well with the participants. But for some other teachers, they are perhaps more comfortable using a wide variety of tools and working on parallel with multiple things, and that might work for them. Excellent reflection. Thank you for the examples, because that's that's exactly what we've been hoping for. Uh, and and the collaboration between teachers is something that we on the university level teaching services really do hope our teachers would sort of pick up. Competition is natural and, and competition is, of course, something that that's never going to go away. But then again, when you're teaching and when you want the students to learn, you want to share your best practices and you also want to share it something that you perhaps have failed in. Because, you know, when you share those experiences with other people. You can go through them yourself, but you can also share that to the other people and they can test themselves that how are they doing it. And then they don't perhaps need to struggle so much. But I think actually competition can also link to co-petition, where competition and collaboration happen at the same time. Because at executive education, everything is based on gigs. They are not going to book you again if your feedback score is lower than a certain threshold and uh, your daily remuneration is not going to go up uh, even later on if you are not um, developing your your portfolio and approach. But still people help each other. And I think that is because everyone knows that we are part of this game. And in a, in a way, like we have all been struggling and not doing our best at times. And even if we are competing, there is this kind of shared experience of that, that we are in this kind of race together and we are in it together. I think on the university side, I think actually the competition is less tense and it's not directly linked to immediate, immediate income. But I think it's also about being so sensitive being so sensitive that who am I to give you advice? Who am I to, I don't want to to, to seem like a person who is coming from von Oben and telling other people how to do things. And and so it's about respect also uh, of your colleagues that that let's, let's let her or him find her or his own way of doing it. And in, in a way, like, like it's, it's also about being a bit shy about it, I think. So at the end of the day, it is important not only create a safe learning environment for the students, but also for the teachers. Exactly. We need psychologically safe spaces also for the teachers. And we need them more than before. It was about two years back, 2.5 years back, when one of my more junior colleagues told me that you better start looking at the Yodel channel of business school students. It was terrifying how they spoke about teachers, about faculty, about course contents, how, how, how they, I was a bit shaken. I knew that it's happening, but I don't, didn't want to see it in my face in a way. Uh, I think we actually need uh, also these psychologically safe spaces for teachers. Absolutely. Uh, now I think our producer is saying that we're sort of 
running out of time. Unless you have something else to say, go ahead. I actually, and you can feel free to cut this, cut okay, this yeah, off go in, ahead. in a way. Go ahead. I'm a little bit um, worried about the culture of learning here at the business school, how it is today. I started at ALT year t- uh, 2010, so at the very beginning of ALT. Mm-hmm. And I think I have, have seen an evolution happening during that period in, in 11 years. And many things are positive. Uh People are more versatile. They are more cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary and so on. But also the culture of um, learning has changed a bit. And I think there is a certain lack of respect, not for everyone. Not, and, and I'm not generalizing. This doesn't apply to, to, to every student. But certain lack of respect um, in regards to teaching, in regards to learning, in regards to commitment, one's commitments to one's uh, study groups, for example. In working life, if you are not in the right place at the right time, and it happens time after time, you are not going to make it anywhere. You cannot even call it a career. And I think actually uh, some of our students, most of them are brilliant, but some of our students really should have this kind of gentle wake-up call that actually if you keep on having these practices, you are not going to be a proud alumni, alumnus or alumna, and you are not going to make it. And I think it's, again, it goes back to the theme of responsibility, Mm -hmm. that actually teachers have great responsibility. But I think that we should also speak a little bit more about responsibilities of the students. There is a fine balance between responsibility and also the cognitive overload that the students perhaps are feeling right now. I think COVID has had a big effect on that. And how we support the students not only to take their responsibility, but also understand that the sort of like emotional burden that they get when they are studying alone and they don't have the community is something that they should consider and reach out for help. Because it's not only that they are, quote, lazy, but they are also a little bit lost. And that's probably also our biggest challenges here at the university. How do we how, how do we help them in that? Um, yes, fully agree on that. And actually, it's tremendous what has happened in one year. When we started teaching in Zoom uh, and, and you had this uh, panel of tiles in front of you, most people had their cameras on. Mm-hmm. Now, minority of people have their cameras on. So something has happened. Something has happened. It's a big thing that we need to we need to sort of find the new playground, how to respect one another. Yeah, fully agree. Well, this has been eye-opening and, and inspiring. Thank you so much, Becca, for joining us. Thank you. For the listeners, this is Future-Led Learning. Thank you for joining. Thanks for listening to the Future-Led Learning podcast. This episode was hosted by Rika Evans. It was produced, recorded and edited by me, Sakari Heiskonen, with music from Siddhartha Courses and the Future-Led Learning theme by Sagerson. All the University Podcasts.